Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Common Ground Podcast. We've been off on holiday for two weeks, but we're very pleased to return to our regular schedule of programming. This week, we have something special for you, a look back or a retrospective on some of our favorite episodes from our inaugural year as a podcast, the very eventful 2016. Our selections for this retrospective aren't random, however. Given the great political significance of 2016, we're going to focus today on some episodes that shed light on the presidential election. What happened to the Republican and Democratic parties in 2016? More broadly, how has conservatism changed in the past 40 years and liberalism too? Given these changes, how did Donald Trump become president-elect? And finally, how will the left respond to Trump's ascendance? Many of our guests in 2016 addressed these questions, even if they didn't quite know it at the time. The Howenstein Center itself hosted a number of programs last year that seem now to look the current political crisis square in the face. We are, for one, a presidential study center, and 2016 proved an important year for the future of the presidency. Likewise, our conference on the Midwest took up the political importance of the Rust Belt, and our summit on progressivism and conservatism challenged critics and scholars left and right to redefine their core ideological positions. As we look forward to 2017, we hope this retrospective might help us take stock of what's changed and what, if anything, has stayed the same. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this is Common Ground. In our first batch of selections, we have guests who address recent changes in the Republican Party that made possible the rise of Trump. E.J. Dion, Daniel McCarthy, and Matthew Cattinetti. First up, E.J. Dion, a columnist at the Washington Post and senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, talks about his recent book, Why the Right Went Wrong. Dion's take on the transformation of the Republican Party in the late 20th century sheds a good deal of light on the rise of Trump. Is that ever since Barry Goldwater's candidacy in 1964, Conservative politicians have had to make a series of promises they couldn't keep because Goldwater, I would argue, radicalized conservatism and created this series of demands that um, uh, Republican politicians, election after election, uh, acceded to. They promised that they would reduce the size of government. Mm -hmm. They promised that over time they'd roll back the cultural changes of the 1960s. And of late, many of them, notably Donald Trump, have promised to reverse the ethnic makeup of the country to something that looks like 1940. In terms of the size of government, they have never been able to succeed because Americans are, as two great analysts of public opinion wrote back in the 1960s, ideological conservatives but operational liberals, which is they are quite critical of government in the abstract but actually want government to do a lot of things Mm -hmm. uh, in the concrete. The best example, I think, is of Tea Partiers who say, They want to cut the size of government, but do not want to cut Social Security or Medicare. It might be sheer accident that many Tea Partiers are near, at, or over the age of 65. But nonetheless, Americans welcome a lot of government activity. So neither 
uh, Nixon nor Reagan nor either President Bush has been able to reduce the size of government. Um, the reversing the cultural changes of the 60s uh, is not possible because the country doesn't want to do that either. Right. There's continued resistance in some quarters to civil rights, but people do not want to get rid of civil rights or feminism. And if anything, the cultural changes continued. There's been no more striking or rapid change in public opinion than attitudes on homosexuality towards gays and lesbians and of late gay marriage. And then changing the ethnic makeup of the country requires, say, the deportation of 11 million people. While Donald Trump promises that most Americans know that's unrealistic. So by failing to keep the promises they kept making, conservative politicians have created a cycle of disappointment, betrayal, and I argue radicalization. Uh, the story of my book is more complicated than this. Since Goldwater, the Republican Party has uh, gone through both uh, a series of purges and a series of withdrawals. Purges in the sense that first liberal and then moderate Republicans were driven out, uh, often in primaries, usually in primaries. And at the same time, moderate voters have withdrawn from the party. And you can see that all over the country in places like the um, suburban collar around Philadelphia, suburban counties outside of Boston, Chicago, uh, on the West Coast. Um, so when uh, the non-Trumpian, non-Cruzian candidates were looking around for voters, well, a lot of them weren't with, in the uh, Republican the Party. Really lackluster performance of candidates like Jeb Bush and even to a certain extent, the sort of so-called moderate establishment Republicans of uh, Bush and uh, Kasich. And they weren't, pre and it's worth mentioning, None of them would have been moderate by any definition exactly. of the word 25 years right. ago. I mean, these were very solidly conservative Republicans who were just not seen as conservative enough or were seen as two quotes establishment. I'm, I'm a bit of a skeptic of that establishment sure, word, establishment. Uh, partly because I think to hang on to power, a lot of establishmentarians have gone over to rather right wing views. It was a great piece by two smart conservatives in the National Review, Rich Lowry and uh, Ramesh Panuru. Uh, their piece was called Establishment Tea, and they talked about how establishment politicians in 2014 had moved toward Tea Party views in order to hang on to their power. So the establishmentarians got what they wanted, which is power, and the Tea Partiers got the concessions on it. We'll hear now from Daniel McCarthy, editor-in-chief of The American Conservative. When we recorded this interview, McCarthy himself had not come out in support of any one candidate for president. His opposition to Clinton and to neoliberalism generally was no mystery. But then he hadn't at that point declared himself, among some other figures on the right, as a, quote, intellectual for Trump or scholar for Trump. In this interview, we learn a bit about why he might have grown to support Trump's bid for the presidency. But it very quickly became something else. Uh, we were saying things that a lot of people within uh, the conservative movement agreed with and believed in, but couldn't say because they would be uh, untrue to the uh, leadership structure of their organizations, perhaps. They might face uh, professional difficulties. This was especially true you know, a decade ago with uh, the, the uh, foreign policy situation. So we were ahead of the curve in terms of uh, criticizing uh, things that were going on in the Bush administration, not only on foreign policy, but also when it came to immigration, when it came to the expansion of uh, Medicare and a few other things. Uh, and that won us a lot of credibility with people who at the time were reluctant to speak out and criticize. He was a very popular president for a few years, uh, but who subsequently realized that, you know, 
If they had spoken out at the time, they would have uh, been seen as prescient. So in a, in a recent article you published on Trump, you admit that you were wrong, and you said this before, you were wrong to say that he was just a blip or a novelty candidate. You said that you initially hadn't taken Trump seriously because you had figured that the Republicans would, like in elections past, vote for the obvious establishment candidate. Why didn't that happen this time? Uh, well, first of all, there wasn't an establishment, uh, uh, you know, as much of a strong establishment candidate as there has been in the past. But clearly, that's not really the main story. I mean, someone like uh, Jeb Bush, you know, could conceivably have uh, filled in that blank. No, I think uh, I was I, I didn't give enough weight to the amount of discontent conservative voters had already registered over the last several years. The fact that Newt Gingrich, for example, won in uh, South Carolina in 2012, that was pretty significant because he was not seen as an establishment's choice. Um, yet, um, you know, South Carolina voters, who had actually been a firewall against Buchanan in the uh, two th in the 1990s, they were willing to reject the establishment and kind of uh, support someone who uh, seemed creative uh, in a way that um, uh, I think sort of foreshadowed Trump. And Gingrich's support for Trump uh, over uh, this cycle has been kind of a uh, you know indication of that. And then, uh, you know, if you look at the um, revolt against the House leadership over the last few years, the fact that uh, Eric Cantor lost his uh, House seat, or lost his primary, rather, and the fact that, uh, you know, John Boehner just reached a, a, a situation where he could not continue as leader. I mean, even if the um, uh, forces against him weren't quite uh, capable of deposing him directly, they were capable of undermining him to the point where he didn't want to continue. Well, you say in your article that, and this is a general quote, but you, you willful, willfully overlooked a lot of the revolt that was happening in the Tea Party since around 2010. So there's Eric Cantor. You listed some other examples. Could you could you call some of those? Yeah. Uh, again, I think uh, Gingrich's uh, yeah. performance in 2012 in uh, South Carolina. I think uh, the toppling of John Boehner uh, last year. Even the fact that you know in places like Delaware, you were having uh, candidates nominated for Senate who were unlikely to win their races. Um, that really obviously were not establishment candidates, but the grassroots were very happy to have someone who, you know, uh, and the, the grassroots had reached a point where they felt as um, alienated from, uh, you know, establishment Republicans as they did from liberal Democrats. And as a result, it just didn't matter to them, even if they lost with a, a candidate they felt more comfortable with, a populist candidate, because um, the alternative was a choice between two establishment candidates mm -hmm. who, in their minds, were equal. So what's your perspective then with the related changes on the left. So Clinton is part of the establishment, to be sure, but Sanders has led his revolt of populists. Uh, does democratic socialism have a future in the mainstream, in your view? Yeah, I don't know whether it's going to be called democratic socialism, but there is an upheaval um, that is exactly parallel to the one on mm -hmm. the right. Um, that basically, in the 1990s, uh, you know, the Bushes and the Clintons, uh, the establishment in both parties, embraced um, what the left calls neoliberalism, which was a regime of free trade, generally uh, more open borders, a degree of um, you know economic freedom, which uh, many conservatives thought was very encouraging, uh, but which also seemed to be aimed um, well, which which many people on the left also embraced. Right. And um, I think that's that's gone out the window. That the, the American middle class, both on the left and the right, really does feel very endangered, and it's shrinking. Uh, is a tension, you know, for Berkeley and conservatives right now. But clearly, more the danger in the short term has come on the side of the establishment. And there don't seem to be, you know, Sanders, for, for all that he is personally very popular, it doesn't seem like democratic socialism as a label has really taken off. Right. And even democratic socialism is pretty mild compared to, you know, um, well, certainly to Bolshevism, but even to, uh, you know, the harder forms of socialism. He's not a Chavista, for example. So um, in that sense, we're not at the 
point of danger yet. We're not at the threshold. And similarly with Trump, uh, even though uh, the vulgarity and uh, occasional outbursts of violence uh, in his uh, rallies are, uh, are repellent, um, I, I think that you know, talk about it as a proto-fascist movement is, is totally out of line and is exaggerated. So um, we're not there yet. But simply saying we're not there yet doesn't mean that um, you know, if you look down the hill and you see where things could roll, that you're not getting a little worried. Well, how would you? I'm, I'm intrigued by by your argument that um, claims that Trumpism is a form of proto-fascism is are just completely out of bounds. How would you reply to some of those arguments? Uh, just that they're massively exaggerated. Uh, you know, in order to have proto-fascism, you would have to have a stronger leadership cult. I think it would have to have uh, a quasi-military either either you know, an element of uh, military mystique or paramilitarism to it that you don't see with Trump. Uh, and I really don't expect you're going to see either. And um, it's clear to me that most of Trump's uh, you know, voters are not people who are looking for an you know, Il Duce or something like that. They are just people who are sick of Clintons and Bushes. Okay. Um, so I, I, it, just, it, it just seems like it, it's melodramatic and it's... Um, and it's doing a disservice as well because it, it allows uh, people on the left and on the right, you know, who are closer to the establishment, just to dismiss the movement and say, well, what's happening is, you know, um, just so awful that we can we don't have to take it seriously, or we can take it seriously only as an evil threat. Whereas they should be actually looking at um, the legitimate complaints that voters have and saying, how can we answer these in a way that doesn't throw civility out the window, that doesn't throw, um, you know, sort of the um, stability out the window, right? Now, let's hear from Matthew Continetti, editor-in-chief of the Washington Free Beacon. No supporter of Trump, Continetti was quick to establish some conservative basis of opposition to the then-Republican frontrunner's often vile rhetoric, as he saw it. Still, Continetti made clear that he thought a lot of Americans were fed up with Clintonism. Let's hear from him now. That Trump's attitude, though you detest it, it seems like a lot of people would like it for precisely the reason you're describing. So I guess my question is, what gave rise to Donald Trump? And was it not just his supposed policy stances, stances against the liberal establishment, but also his, his critique of political correctness? Is this what is carrying him through the presidential election? And is this what would make him, in fact, a possible next president and, and an actual threat to, to Hillary Clinton? Well, I, I remember during the Republican primary when asked what, why voters like Donald Trump, a lot of his people would say it's because, quote, he told it like it is, close quote. And I think that speaks to kind of this political uh, willingness to be politically incorrect, a willingness to say things that are just completely beyond the pale that his voters like, his supporters like that. I do think that's true. Uh, I think another thing motivating support for him is kind of the politics of dissociation. We discussed this idea that somehow the executive, the executive branch needs to be brought under control, and maybe it's this person who has never been a part of government might be able to do it. And then thirdly, there are just regular Republicans, people who always vote for Republican, and they're going to vote for this Republican, because as much as Trump deviates from conservative dogma, on the big questions, the questions of immigration, the questions of judicial appointments, the questions of taxes, the questions of guns, he is kind of cut from the Republican cloth, and so they'll vote for him in November. So win or lose, what significance do you think the Trump campaign will have on the Republican Party, 
on conservatism and on American politics generally? Well, I think it's already had a tremendous significance. I think it's already driven, it's accelerated a process that's been going on for some time, which is that white voters with college degrees are moving steadily toward the Democratic column. And the Republican Party is becoming much more of a populist party. Uh, social issues, which have always been kind of the third part of the Republican stool, are now taking precedence. And when, we, when I say social issues, we immediately think abortion and same-sex marriage. But indeed, it's a much more expansive category. It includes the gun issue. It includes the immigration issue. It includes the judge issue, which is a proxy for all of these social hot-button topics. Those are really coming to the fore. And then if you look at, obviously, foreign policy, Trump is a repudiation of post-war consensus, I mean, post-World War II consensus. And on economic policy, which he doesn't really devote that much time to, interestingly, uh, he, I mean, he has this gonzo supply-side tax plan. He doesn't really talk about it all that much. He's more interested in trade and immigration. I really see it as kind of a social issues right, a, a populist right that has always been part of the Republic coalition that is now, I think, increasingly dominant in it. And I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen on November eighth. I certainly don't know what's going to happen beginning November 9th. But how the Republican Party deals with this, whether that trend I mentioned accelerates and you have more college degree holders just becoming Democrats, how that changes the Democratic Party would be interesting because it too has problems. By the way, these are the most pressing questions of American politics. Now that we've heard a bit about the rise of Trump, let's take a step back and think about the changes in American culture that in some sense gave rise to the events of 2016. This year, I interviewed two historians, Andrew Hartman and Natalia Melman Petruzella, about the national debates over culture, politics, and education that raged from the 60s to the 80s. These debates, generally known as the culture wars, seem to resurge with a vengeance this year. Hartman and Petruzella talk about those debates. They also gesture toward their significance today. First, in this section, we hear from Andrew Hartman, professor of history at Illinois State University, who talks about his recent book, A War for the Soul of America. Here are clips from that conversation. What happened in the 1960s, I argue, is there was indeed a massive transformation of American culture. It became more multicultural, more cosmopolitan, more secular, in many ways more liberal, and you might even say more relativistic. Now, all of this you could lump under the umbrella of the modern world or modernity, and so a lot of the sort of threads that came to the surface in the 1960s had long been swirling underneath the surface for at least maybe 100 years, but particularly since, say, the 1920s. Massive world events in the middle of the 20th century, such as the Great Depression and World War II and then the early Cold War, sort of put a lid on this burning cauldron of modernity. But for a host of reasons, it all came off. The lid came off in the 1960s. And the transformations were rapid. And for many people, they were exciting, exhilarating. But for others, they were quite threatening. Why would these transformations have been exciting for some people and 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 intimidating for others? I recall, I think you, you call the transformations as as sort of taking apart in some people's view the, the sort of normative America. Could you talk about that a bit? So normative America, which is a 
a term I used to describe 1950s America was a time when norms were prescribed and these norms were, they were strongly held together by a culture that, by a white middle-class culture that was the dominant culture that valued such things as meritocracy, that valued um, such things as the heterosexual um, nuclear family. In fact, the 1950s is probably the most put together um, nuclear family in American history. Before the 1950s and after the 1950s, there was less habitation in nuclear families. And so this is like the high point of the nuclear family. It's a, it's a, it's a short window, but that is the America that many, especially traditional Americans like Buchanan remembered. All of this is coming apart in the 1960s for a whole host of reasons. Some of these reasons have to do with the movements that people form to fight against this normative America. The feminist movement, the gay liberation movement, the black power and ethnic power movements, uh, even the countercultural movement and the anti-war movement in which it was wrapped up in, all of this represented a challenge to normative America. Those who were doing the challenging never felt necessarily at home in normative America. If you were black, if you were gay, or if you were a woman who didn't want to be a stay-at-home mother, in certain respects, that normative America was not your America, it was somebody else's America. And so for many such people, um, the, the movements of the 1960s that, that transformed the nation and the national culture, they were, they were efforts in some way to make America more resemble the America of their dreams. I think it's no surprise that the university became perhaps one of the central locations for the culture wars in the 80s and 90s. The university had become, more than ever before, an engine of American opportunity and also the place where the promise of American life was fought out and debated. And especially in the humanities, I mean, the very purpose of the humanities anywhere, but particularly in the United States, was to contemplate human nature and in an American context that was often to contemplate the American project, the American experience, American identity. The movements of the 1960s totally transformed the way that question was asked and answered in humanities departments across the country. And there came to be less of a consensus about America's role in the world as a beacon of light and much more critical analysis of America through the lens of race and through the lens of gender in particular. What you see is that a, a certain sort of relativistic framework for understanding things like truth and human nature became the dominant framework. And a lot of this was sort of, at least in, it was spoken in the language of French theory. Although I would argue that it goes way back to pragmatism in an American context, or perhaps even to transcendentalism. But it was often, you know, it was scholars citing people like Foucault and Derrida to make their case. But the way in which French theory was put to use in the United States was vastly different than the way it was put to use in other places, including especially in France. In the United States, it was put to use for identity politics and this sort of relativistic framework for understanding things like the truth was used to demolish this normative American conception of greatness that, or, or, a, or a normative American conception of, quote unquote, the canon that had been 
sort of the way the humanities have been taught for much of the 20th century up until then. And so, you know, all sides in this debate, because they recognize the importance of the university as the place where the promise of, of American life was established and debated, there were people who were, they were very invested in this debate, and conservatives in particular. Now we'll hear from Natalia Mailman Petrozella, assistant professor of history at the New School and the author of Classroom Wars, Language, Sex, and the Making of Modern Political Culture. In the following clip, we hear from Natalia about debates over education in America and how they can shed light on our country's shifting political landscape from the 1960s to the present. Often when we think about the educational debates of that period, what's the biggest flashpoint issue? It's desegregation, as well it should be. I mean, this preoccupied not just the South, but the North and the West in different ways. And so it makes it really makes sense that this is the central thing that educational historians have been preoccupied with. At the same time, from my perspective, reading the history of education, it seemed to me that a lot was left out. One, it presupposed this kind of black-white racial vision of what schools looked like. And two, by focusing on that particular issue, that is really a policy issue in many ways, desegregation. And it doesn't get to curriculum. It is related to curriculum later down the line. But I was wondering, what was in this very contested period, not just of the 70s and 80s, but of the 60s as well, in terms of the curriculum, what was firing people up? Where were these bigger questions and concerns about a society that was being dislocated, that was being transformed? How is that playing out inside schools? So that is a long way of saying that the questions that really came to the fore for me were bilingual education and this issue of after 1965, all of these Latin American immigrants and Asian immigrants as well, but they had a sort of different story about this, but all these Latino immigrants coming into the United States, making demands on schools, making claims, unlike other generations of immigrants really had for recognition as a linguistic minority, I saw that that was a very major issue. And then the second one, which we'll get to, were concerns about sex education, which was a relatively small curriculum, but one that generated the most grand claims about the end of society, right? Your kid was going to have three hours of sex ed in a semester, and this was clearly a communist plot. So those two things got me really interested. Well, so that, that's very tantalizing. But if we go, <laughs> if we go back regarding debate over, over language, yeah. so what were, the, what were the terms of the debate? What were people worried about? During the period of the civil rights movements, which are often taught as African-American movements, during that period, you have a greater focus and celebration on ethnic identity identity, on linguistic identity, and really a very strong critique, and that's even a weak word for it, critique of the idea of assimilation, which had been such a dominant way of absorbing immigrants into the United States in previous years. So, so they come in and assimilate to the They come the in, culture. they assimilate, they have their cultural differences, we recognize some of them, you know, with often think with contributionist ways, as historians call them, like food or holidays or or folk dancing, sort of harmless ways. We recognize those things, but it's on the immigrant to learn the language and to acculturate themselves to the culture. All of that is being critiqued during this period of the 1960s and 70s. So the language issue becomes one of the frontline issues in this regard, where you have Latino immigrants, and not all of them bought into this, but Latino immigrants claiming brown power, asking for recognition in the schoolhouse. What was one of the number one ways that they did this? They 
said we want Spanish-speaking administrators. They said we want um, Chicano history in classes. They said we want Spanish language texts and we want translations. And I grouped together the language and the culture piece because they were always grouped together. This wasn't just about we want simultaneous translation. This was activism around language in service of a cultural goal. So what was the pushback against this? Okay, so the pushback against it, which maybe listeners might expect, but this is anti-American, this is anti-patriotic. Remember, this is during the Cold War also. So during the Cold War, a very popular trope on the right was that a kind of globalism was going to take over American mm -hmm. kids and American families and those government schools, which the right always called public schools. What stronger indication of that than seating on English in the schoolhouse, you're going to tell kids that they don't have to learn English to come to this country. I mean, this is the beginning of the end. So it was interesting. We don't usually think about Latinos and Cold War struggles together, but it was the pushback to it was very much part of that. So before we get to the results of this debate, the first part or section of your book is titled Language, from mm -hmm. this is what we've been talking about. The second is, again, rather tantalizingly called Sex. Um, Got to throw it in there. <laughs> exactly. Um, the general theme is, of course, how politicized sex education became in the 70s and 80s. Can you describe that debate for us? The history of sex education was more fully written when I came into this than the history of bilingual education. And the story that we generally knew in this period very much cohered with this narrative that historians were very into it the, in the early 21st century about the rise of the right. And the idea was that the new right was on this upswing and what better evidence of this than fights over sex education. Liberal sex educators were implementing progressive curricula and the right wing kind of pushed them out of schools and they marched onward toward the Reagan revolution and, and, and things like that. And part of that is absolutely true. But the stories that I discovered around sex education were one that yes, it was true that the 1960s and the sexual revolution of the 1970s definitely gave rise to some more progressive sex ed curricula. Those sex ed curricula inspired major, major backlash from the right all over the country. I mean, these are pamphlets that sell millions of copies with titles like, is the schoolhouse the place to teach raw sex? And you'd have Christian crusade preachers coming into individual communities and lecturing, getting like hundreds and hundreds of people. So all of that was happening. But I think I might be one of the only people, those combatants included, who actually went back and read the curricula. And what I realized is that that these curricula were not all that progressive at all. They would talk about homosexuality, maybe to say this is a sickness that must be rooted out. They would all culminate, lesson 12 for senior year would culminate in marriage education. It was, you know, a heterosexual marriage about the woman managing the domestic economy and the man being a good husband. Very moderate kind of... To, to our standards. To our standards. Yeah. But actually, even then, they okay. were not disrupting major assumptions about gender, about sexuality. But what was pretty radical was talking about sex at all. And that was a big change that I saw happen in the years that I charted there. Whereas in the 1960s, you had conservatives really, and it looks retrospectively almost sort of in a very adorable way, advocating we need silence around these issues. We can't even talk about sex at all. Even saying homosexuals are sick is bad because by mentioning this stuff, you're condoning it and kids will try it. But then what I realized was there 
was this discursive change. That by the 1970s, plenty of people still had very conservative ideas, but they were more willing to talk about sex openly. Perhaps because they realized the battle had actually been won by progressives who were talking about this stuff everywhere. In 2016, we also had a number of episodes about major figures of the conservative movement of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. These figures provide some counterpoint to the current ideology of the right in America, particularly that of Donald Trump and the so-called alt-right or alternative right. First, we'll hear from Heather Hendershot, professor of film and media at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and author of Open to Debate, how William F. Buckley put liberal America on the firing line. In the following clips, Hendershot addresses William F. Buckley's show, Firing Line, which ran from the 60s to the 90s, and in which Buckley, that grand old man of the right, would invite major thinkers from the right and the left to debate him on issues relevant to the nation. He was uh, an intellectual and a gentleman and someone who had been trained in debate at Yale, and he really didn't want to just attack people. He wanted to have an honest intellectual conversation with people with whom he strongly disagreed. And so there were some people he disagreed with too much. You know, he didn't want an out-and-out -out communist on the show. He would have socialists on the show. One of his best friends was John Kenneth Galbraith, who was the great radical left um, economist from, from Harvard. Um, so he would have people he really strongly disagreed with, and they would talk things through. And the idea was that you could come to this show as a liberal, and you might become a better, a better liberal listening to that point of view, or you could come as a conservative, and you might become a better conservative by learning about that position more. And Buckley was so confident in his views, he thought, well, if I argue with people, most people will agree with me, I'm going to win. <laughs> and so he was comfortable enough to show the other side let it express itself, and let the chips fall where they may. And so there's a, a confidence in his position, but also a confidence in people watching the show, that they are reasoned, that they will sit and listen. And, of course, it's very different from the kind of sort of soundbite culture and argumentative culture that dominates, uh, say, on cable news now, on a lot of talk radio and so on. So you describe Buckley in your book as being, as you say, one of the central figures of post-war conservatism. But perhaps more importantly, or more interestingly for, for your purposes, you, you also suggest that Buckley's style, his kind of uh, patrician manner, his, his intellectualism and willingness to, say, you know, produce tons of copy for National Review and then run a mayoral campaign on the side, these things made him the perfect media personality at the time. So could you talk about that? Why was Buckley alluring to people in the 60s? Absolutely. Well, you know, he came onto the scene initially in the 50s with his book, God and Man at Yale, which was a bestseller around number 11 or 12, it tends to be on the bestseller list. And he was known as a public intellectual, but it was 1965 was the tipping point for him becoming really well-known because he ran for mayor of New York. And he was a protest candidate. He ran the conservative ticket. He knew he wouldn't win. Uh, when asked, you know, what's the first thing you would do if you won the election, he said, demand a recount. <laughs> because, you know, that seemed really unlikely. Um, but he wanted for, to protest that Lindsay, John Lindsay, was running on the Republican ticket to be mayor of New York City, and Lindsay wasn't really conservative. And this was not, you know, he, he Buckley and his compatriots wanted to pull the Republican Party farther right. And at the same time, they wanted to get the kooks, the nuts, the John Birch Society people 
out of conservatism. They didn't want people like the John Birch Society or even people like George Wallace to be seen as exemplary conservatives or Republicans in any way. So the image of conservatism in the 60s was that they were all kooky. They were all extremists. They were people who thought that the fluoridation of water was a communist conspiracy. And he wanted to get that conspiratorialist out. He wanted to push it out. And so he was doing something political, but to get back to your initial question, he was also reshaping the image of conservatism and showing that conservatives could be urbane and sophisticated and uh, you know, go to Ivy League schools. They didn't have to have a kind of backward bumpkin, uh, even redneck kind of image that some of them have. And so with that mayoral campaign, he became the public face of respectable conservatism. Well, another, a number of questions come to mind about the, a variety of things you just said. I guess I'll start. I guess I'll start here. So you mentioned that Buckley was kind of so confident in his argumentation that he would actually bring on leftists. And in, in your book, you mentioned hippies like Allen Ginsberg and feminists and, and representatives of the Black Power movement onto his show and talk with them for an hour. The the perhaps mm-hmm. unintended but certainly welcome effect for many viewers was that say you were a liberal, you might actually become a better liberal by watching the show. So could you talk about that? Uh, are there any examples of episodes where, where Buckley just willingly brings on someone who actually does best him on his own show? Well, um, that's a good question. There were definitely guests who, you know, he was pretty confident, and he, I think, most often thought he had sort of won the discussion, mm. especially if he had on someone who was kind of more on the far left side, like when he had he had Eldridge Cleaver on and Huey P. Newton, and they were very extreme in the kinds of things they were saying, very revolutionary, and he just felt, well, most viewers are going to decide for themselves that I'm the more sort of rational position. But he really did have people on who he ultimately by the end thought, wow, they did just a really a bang-up job. One example is Muhammad Ali, mm. who... Uh, was on the show to discuss why he was a conscientious objector during the Vietnam War. And Buckley thought that his uh, resistance to joining the Army was uh, not sincere. You know, that was his position when, when Ali came on the show. He thought he just wanted to get out of serving, and he didn't really buy the, the faith arguments that Ali had made. And Ali made a really strong argument on the show, and he changed Buckley's mind. And he also, this was kind of a very interesting moment on the show, um, Buckley was asking some very complicated questions, and Muhammad Ali said, you know, Mr. Buckley, I barely graduated from high school, and I think maybe I did in part because my teachers kind of gave me a, did, a, did me a favor. <laughs> you know, I was a poor student, and uh, when you talk that way, it's actually very hard for me. I can't really follow everything you're saying. And he basically said, you know, bring it down a notch. And Buckley responded like, an excellent host at a dinner party, right. you know, where if, you're, if your guests are uncomfortable, you change the topic, you change your approach, you, you know, you make them comfortable. And so he said, okay. And so he, you know, spoke in a way that was more comfortable for Ali. And I think he, that was somewhat disarming for him, you know. Mm. And about two weeks after that appearance, Muhammad Ali was at a press conference, and he said, you know, I KO'd Buckley. <laughs> And on the very last episode of Firing Line in 1999, Buckley showed clips from what he thought were the best and most important episodes of Firing Line. And he included a clip of Muhammad Ali. 
And then, as you know, an older man <laughs> on the dais, you know, with the contemporaries and service and liberal that moment, he looks at the audience and he says, you know, Muhammad Ali said he's Cato Buckley, and he was right. You know, he still, many years later, saw that as a, as a moment where he'd been sort of bested. Not necessarily changing in his own mind, but um, very obviously granting a point here and there. Mm -hmm. You said mm -hmm. you said the evolution of his views on civil rights, uh, given his engagement with the Black Power movement, on the show as an example. You even write that absolutely. Well, and, and this is Sorry. a good. Well, no, it's fine. This is a great line. I just I'll, I'll feed you this line, and then you can run with it. I, I love this line. Quote: Firing line was perhaps the single venue in the mainstream American mass media where Black Power got a fair shake in the late 1960s and early 70s. Could you talk about that? Absolutely. You know, after Martin Luther King's assassination, there were a small number of local public affairs shows that did allow black power voices on TV in Chicago and New York. Um, but those were short-lived, and they really struggled. And basically, it was, hard, it was very hard for black power to get a hearing in the mass media. Um, it was reported as... In, in sort of uh, sensationalist ways, uh, anything that a black power person said that sounded violent, you know, it was about guns and stuff like that, that would, that would be the lead, that would be the headline. And the actual arguments uh, for why black power people were favoring revolution uh, were not often expressed in the mass media. And in fact, there's a moment during the, in the Nixon years when Nixon basically conveyed to the networks that they should stop covering black power. I mean, he also wanted them to stop covering Vietnam, and they did not stop covering Vietnam, thank goodness, but they did really scale down the coverage of black power. And it's no sense, like, you know, they're radicals, don't give them the free airtime. And Buckley felt like, well, they're radicals, and I disagree with them. Let's hear what they have to say. Next up, we hear from Bradley Berzer, professor of history, and Russell Amos Kirk, chair in American Studies at Hillsdale College. Berzer is the author, most recently, of Russell Kirk, American Conservative. In this clip, we hear from Bradley Berzer about Russell Kirk, the founder of post-war conservatism, whose thought, our guest suggests, has largely been abandoned in the age of Trump. He didn't like Bush. Uh, I don't think Fox News would go over well with him, and I'm pretty skeptical that he would have anything that he could relate to with Trump, especially with that kind of New York consumerism that comes with Trump and the gambling. Just the personality is so different from Kirk. So, Joe, great question. Kirk is... You know, he lived from 1918 until 1994, and he is generally regarded, even by people who don't agree with him, as the founder of post-war conservatism. But what he did at the end of World War II, and he served for, he was in the army for about five and a half, six years. It took a while for the army to release him after the war. But after he had served, he was very interested in trying to bring together an idea of what it meant to be an American or a citizen of Western civilization. And he was afraid for much of the 1940s and 1950s that there really was nothing that we stood for. There were a lot of things we were against. We knew we weren't fascists. We knew we weren't communists. Generally, we didn't like ideology. But as Americans, we didn't really stand for anything except, as Kirk would have been loath to say, but also recognized as a truth, except for the dollar and consumerist culture, which he thought was very degrading. Not quite as degrading as, say, communism or fascism, but pretty close. And the fact that you know, at least communism and fascism are imposed upon you, whereas consumerism is freely chosen. He was worried about those things, worried about what this meant for the human person. 
So one really interesting thing, Joe, and I, I know you and I have talked about this before, but one of the most interesting things about conservatism in the 1940s and 50s, at least as Kirk and a couple of others defined it, they really saw it as a movement to prevent conformity. They weren't radical individualists, but they had a profound respect for individual dignity and really for the differences or excellences that come out one person to another. And so they, in many ways, they were just as worried about ideological terror and conformity as they were uh, suburban conformity. And so that a lot of the movement in the 1940s and 50s, which is so strange to us, because I think there's so much groupthink and conservatism today in 2016 going on 2017. But when Kirk was a conservative, he was essentially a rebel in the 1950s. And so you would ask, why does he matter? or What did he do that matters? I think it's it's vital to note that he caught on so well in the 1950s in large part because he was a rebel against a lot of American culture. So conservatism was seen as something that was both traditional, but also rebellious. And that that carried with him. And I think that intrigued a lot of people, including writers at the New York Times and elsewhere, who thought, yeah, this, this is something we need to look at. This isn't just boring state standpadism, but there's something interesting that we need to talk about here and figure out who we are against change. He just believes that change has to be done within the kind of everyday routine. And this is the duty of every generation to kind of think about, well, do we accept this? Do we not? Do we reform it? Uh, and if so, how do we reform it while still honoring our, our fathers and grandfathers and mothers and grandmothers really stood for in the in his time period was a, a love of discussion, a love of dialogue. I think he would have been very taken with, you know, the old kind of PBS shows with the idea that we sit around for an hour or two and hash out something. Uh, maybe we do it over brandy while we're some where we're smoking, <laughs> whatever it may be. I just I think Kirk was an old style gentleman. And Conservatism today, and I don't want to suggest that all conservatives are bad by any means. I think there's some really good people on radio, uh, especially, and I think there's some good people at Fox and CNN and elsewhere, too. I don't want to suggest they're all bad, but the trend has been towards a kind of hyper-consumerist form of conservatism. You know, we're trying to make money with this, or we're selling some product, or consumerism is really the end-all. Life is about getting rich, or life is about getting ahead, or being stable in a middle-class income or whatever it may be, or having the latest thing, or it tends to be extremely sour and negative. And I think Kirk tried really hard to be both critical of that consumerism, but also trying to provide people with an alternative. You know, rather than just worrying about income, why don't we pick up a book? Why don't we recognize the kind of long-term dignity of who and what we are? And, you know, Joe, I don't know if you would agree with me or not. I just don't see that overall out in modern, what's called modern conservatism. Uh, there's just too much desire to get ahead, to win the argument, without actually thinking about the long-term consequences of what a debate may mean. Finally, in this section, we hear from Gleaves Whitney, director of the Howenstein Center, who discusses the life and work of one of his most influential teachers in graduate school at the University of Michigan, the intellectual historian Stephen Tonser. Tonser was considered a major conservative thinker in the post-war era. His take on American politics and history can be understood in contrast to the current moment 
of Trumpism. What attracted me to study under Stephen Tonser at Michigan was that he was a historian who sought out truly transcendent problems. He, he really resisted specialization. You know, a specialist is somebody who learns more and more about less and less. And he would bypass the small issues that so many professors were working on. And he had a civilizational mission. And I love that mission. It's one of the things that I found really compelling about him and his fierce intellect. And his, his intellectual task was to understand modernity and, and to teach what he understood. And his ethical task was to confront modernity. And so in tandem, these two tasks comprise the civilizational mission of Stephen Tonser. I felt that going to grad school was more than just about professionalizing. It was truly to be steeped in a purpose, to do something great, something grand with, with your life. And that's very appealing to a young person. Well, I think that's that's absolutely right. That that resonates certainly. I, so what you're saying is that you were attracted, in a sense, to his sort of intellectual style and attitude, his willingness to take on big questions that have great cultural importance. What was it about his particular take on, say, the Enlightenment that was attractive to you? Not just the fact that he was so willing to take it on in its entirety and in its complexity, but what did he have to say about the Enlightenment and about modernity that was attractive to you at the time? That's a great question because you do have to step back. This is a professor of, of Western European history as well as an intellectual historian, but the bread and butter course that he taught to freshmen was Western Civ. And he had a, a way of seeing Western Civ. Now, these are my terms, but he, I think, would agree to them. But he saw Western Civ as a binary civilization. This goes way back. This, this is deep in our roots uh, as a civilization, all the way back to when the early church is asking, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? And then Thomas Aquinas comes along in the 13th century and is asking, similar questions and sifting through the documents of five civilizations, weighing the truth claims of the best thinkers of five civilizations. So he saw Western civilization as having this dynamism that was really important to understanding how modernity would come about later. The dynamism was already there prior to modernity. Now, by the time you get to the Enlightenment at the end of the 17th century and the 18th century, what makes the Enlightenment so interesting is that it begins to set up a, a tension with Christendom. What that means, uh, and it's very important to understand this, is that the Enlightenment would be a revolutionary movement because it would establish a competing source of authority in the European mind. And that's going to change the fundamental character of our civilization. Henceforward, you know, you're not just going to have one source, but you're going to have two sources competing for intellectual and moral authority. You're going to have the ancient and medieval source of religious values that developed in Christendom in the Middle Ages, and you're going to have the modern source of secular values that developed in the Enlightenment. And, you know, Tonser would say the former was oriented to the things above and the latter to the things below. And it was the struggle between these two competing sources of intellectual and moral authority that would raise the pivotal question in the West's inner history. Tonsard would talk about the West's inner history, and that question was, what should the relation between these two sources of authority be? That's what gave our civilization such energy, such dynamism. And he thought that was a good thing. This is easy to misunderstand. A lot of 
people would look at Tonser and say, oh, he's just a reactionary who wants to return us to the 13th century. He's one of these Catholic redentists who want to go back in time. That's not at all true. He accepted modernity, but he insisted that it was our duty to confront modernity. And by confront, I don't mean to be just automatically hostile to it. It's not a knee-jerk reaction against modernity. It's the sense of confrontation which you you test modernity, you sift modernity. What is tearing down the dignity of the human person in modernity as opposed to what in modernity can we keep that is furthering the dignity of the human person? I've heard you use a term to describe the habit of thinking that Tanser endorsed when approaching or confronting these questions, you use the term, and forgive me, Gleese, if I mispronounce this, you'll have to correct me, but um, because you know German, I, I really don't. But Well, he'll come back from the grave and strike you if you yeah. don't get it right. <laughs> I'll give it my best. It's Einfühlung. That's pretty good, Joe. Thank you. Oh, well, I've been practicing all morning. You used to say this in the office, and I'm, I'm sure you still do, and you always reference Tanzer when you use it. So what does that term mean, and how does it relate to the sort of approach to history that you've been describing Tanzer as having endorsed? The reason history is one of the liberal arts is that it gets us to get out of our parochial view of things. It, it encourages us to step into the shoes of another. Now, sometimes it's through a novel, you know, in an English class or a comp lit class. We'll all of a sudden be exposed to this character that we find so compelling. And it's a character we would never have had the chance to meet otherwise. But our sense of the human condition of the different types of people is expanded in this process. All Einfühlung is is sympathetic identification. That's roughly how the word is translated, although you know how these German words are. There's never the perfect translation. They always have their fine Baroque point on the the word, these long words. But Einfühlung, in a historical sense, is being able to suspend your own self as as a historical creature, your consciousness as a historical creature, in this time and actually look back at a previous era, having understood as much as you can about the way of life of that era, the way of thought of that era, can you step into the shoes of a person who lived 200 years ago? Say you want to know the origins of Marxism. Can you go back to the Viennese coffee houses? Can you understand how what the reaction to, say, the Communist Manifesto was in 1848? If you can get that that frisson of discovery, that thrill of saying, okay, I get it. If I were in a Viennese coffee house in 1848 and had just read the Communist Manifesto and I was interested in liberating people from poverty uh, of the immiseration of the Industrial Revolution, then I would find that this would be a very compelling argument. That's Einfühlung, and Tanzer would challenge us through a host of exercises, both of a literary nature, uh, also in paintings, and in uh, source documents and intellectual history, to sympathetically identify with the people we were studying. Last year, we hosted a number of guests who are advancing a leftist response, not just to a Trumpian Republican Party, but to a Democratic Party dominated by what might be called Clintonism. Bhaskar Sankara and Sarah Leonard, both young writers and editors on the socialist or social democratic left, talk about the present and the future of the left critique of American politics. First up in this section, Bhaskar Sankara, who's the founding editor and publisher of Jacobin magazine. Initially, the impulse for Jacobin came from a set of politics, 
so it wasn't necessarily an interest in editing or publishing for its own sake. But the idea that the left was small and insular and largely speaking to the same few thousand people. And it had abandoned, I think, a lot which was important and relevant about the left in people's day-to-day -day lives, you know, focus on political economy, understanding the wider forces and structure our day-to-day -day lives and so on. And I think it had devolved into a lot of single-issue campaigns and, and things like that that really couldn't construct a narrative that connected to, to regular people. So the idea being, we wanted to, me and the initial kind of group of writers around um, Jackman, wanted to remember why we became socialists in the first place. And we thought, we're not that unusual. We're pretty unusual, but we're not super, super unusual. So there must have been something compelling, something important in, in the initial kind of like the narratives, the, the big narrative of socialism, the dream of social progress, the dream of a world without class exploitation, without unnecessary suffering, you know, and so on. And we thought that these ideas were so compelling that even if they weren't necessarily going to win a majority of people, they at the very least would reach win more than the few thousand people that were um, consuming it in a, in a small kind of like ghetto. So the idea being we would take the left out of just a subculture of the left and we would try to reach a potential audience and an audience that we thought existed, but we couldn't be sure of that. Hmm. So in other words, our audience was the unpoliticized, our audience was liberals, we'd be ambassadors for a set of thought that was basically, you know, dead. And obviously, we also tried to make interventions within the left, but that was mostly about kind of an orthodoxy in certain ways, about the um, importance of class politics and organizations, about, you know, a, a very traditional, in a sense, socialist program in a left that was, at that point, drifting towards anarchist ideas or other kind of ultra-leftist ideas or... It was focused primarily on, you know, issues of identity and representation. We, we were, in a way, kind of throwbacks, but we were doing so in a way that was um, meant to be fresh and accessible and whatnot. So it often confused people because it was a combination of, you know, what people thought to be more, for lack of a better word, innovative ways to connect to people and reach people. But the actual politics, you know, there was we had no pretenses of not being anything but orthodox. Um, you know, in our politics. So I think the first time I heard about Jacobin, and this might be true for plenty of other people, is when you publish an article by Seth Ackerman called Burn the Constitution. Right. So there was something that seemed deliberately provocative or confrontational about that article. And then, of course, the title of your magazine uh, seems also to call to mind, rather than distract from, this idea of revolt or rebellion. So have, have I got that sort of right in your view? And, and if so, why that rhetorical strategy? Well, yes and no. I mean, I think in certain ways, we obviously try to make uh, provocations, you know, on certain things. So Burn the Constitution is, is basically an article just about how constitutionism has not done the left any favors, how the structure of the U.S. US society, you know, it's intended this way if you read the Federalist Papers, you read our, our founders, was made to suppress popular aspirations. And the Constitution isn't really the embodiment of it. It's it's kind of the, the sign of a lot of popular defeat. So, you know, just pushing against this common sense orthodoxy most people have. You know, I'm, I'm a little bit softer than Seth on, you know, one part of the Constitution, and that's just the Bill of Rights, but the Bill of Rights weren't even in the initial, mm -hmm. you know, Constitution. They were, they were foisted upon it um, to begin with. Seth's argument, I would guess, is just 
every single other Western democracy is has basically enshrined the same rights, but just not in the same kind of form, without the same kind of fixed, rigid, rigid constitution, and so on. And that's that's well taken. I just, you know, I, I, I in a way, want to find something progressive in the American experience, and that's not a terrible place to start for me, the Bill of Rights, at least. Now, when it comes to uh, the name Jacobin, well, in a certain way, it was meant to be vague in a sense and just connote something radical. It wasn't meant to directly allude to the French Revolution necessarily. Mm-hmm. Though, of course, you know, we are defenders of the French Revolution. You know, I myself am pretty much an absolutist when it comes to my opposition to the death penalty. Even in a revolutionary situation, it's hard to compare the the many deaths of the French Revolution in a brief period compared to like the long misery and suffering that came before it. Um, or the Napoleonic Wars afterwards, which which killed a lot more people. But then, but then um, it also would be the Haitian Revolution. The Haitian right? Revolution, yeah, especially since Ramiki came on and with our our logo and everything else. Yeah, it, it, it connotes the Haitian Revolution for a certain reason, though, because what we're trying to emphasize is the power of the Enlightenment and these ideas and their resonance, kind of, so kind of a broader universalism. So I think both on the right... I think there was a rejection of that kind of period of chaotic universalism, kind of the Burkean, you know, mm-hmm. mold. But then on the left, there was this idea that, well, the French Revolution wasn't inspiring at all because it was still Eurocentric, it's still blah, blah, blah. So we wanted to basically say, no, in fact, these ideas originated in Europe. But if you look at the actual writings for the Haitian Revolution, you know, these are people that took them to heart and applied them to their own circumstances and their own quest to live better lives. So we were harkening back to kind of an earlier era of, you know, the beginning of the Enlightenment, the beginning of that struggle, because that's how we situate, in many ways, socialist politics, right? So we're not the negation of liberalism. So this is maybe why we're not as provocative as people might think. Mm. So we're not anarchists who think that we want to create something new, so we want to burn everything down and start at year zero and build something, a different kind of society. I see socialist politics as being the continuation and the fulfillment of the dream of liberalism. So when liberals talk about political and civil rights, we agree with them. And we agree with their rhetoric and the way where it draws inspiration from. What we want to say is that why don't you apply that same logic to economic and social spheres as well? So in a way, we want to take liberalism and make it fulfill its own promise, you know, fulfill the unfulfilled promise of the Enlightenment. And that's a way I've always situated socialist politics and, and generally Jackman contributors uh, do as well. If socialism is the extension of democracy from the purely formal political realm into the social and economic realms, how do we analyze societies in which there was not even democracy in the in civil society in the social realm? So in other words, if you're in a society like East Germany, you're a worker and you can't form an independent trade union, if you can't engage in, you know, basic, you know, civil rights, the right to demonstrate, to form assemblies, and and so on, how is that society any more socialist than, let's say, West Germany, Mm -hmm. and the society that developed there? So when I look at the heights of the achievements of the socialist movement, and the closest we came to actually building socialism, I actually look at Scandinavian social democracy, or at the very least, I look at, let's say, in Sweden in the 1970s, where you have huge swaths of the economy decommodified, you know, taken out of the market and enjoyed as social rights, where you had powerful unions, you had a political representative of the working class and the Social Democratic Party governing. Obviously, they were doing so within capitalism, so there was constraints to what they could accomplish. And also, a lot of those accomplishments were rolled back, because in a way, the 
workers got a favorable position in the game at that point, but the rules of the game were still dictated and constrained by, by capital. They weren't able to develop enough structural power to actually rewrite the rules of, of the game. So there was obviously limits to that experience, but I would imagine my vision of, of socialism would come from the high point of those kind of social democratic experiments being pushed you know, even further. So it's a very different, you know, it's a different tradition. And I think that when we actually look at the successes of the welfare state and the, the advanced capitalist world, when you look at how favorably people, let's say in Britain, view the NHS, the way people in the United States, you know, respect and defend programs like Medicare, you know, you would actually see that a lot of these programs are actually successful. People do like democracy. They do like um, enjoying um, the necessities of social rights and so on. Besides for that, it's an argument that needs to be won. And it's also a sign that the left needs to learn from the failures of the 20th century and, you know, prevent any future scenario where, you know, any attempt to supersede capitalism isn't done by multi-party democracy. We're also, we're allowing people the right to kind of roll back gains. So in other words, me and you right now can go outside and we could start a monarchist party. You know, we could call for a return to feudalism or something like that. We have that legal right. No one would vote for us. In the same way, for me, a functioning social society that's matured 40, 50, 60 years in its development will have plenty of pro-capitalist parties. I just don't anticipate them polling more than 6, 7, 8%. Um, but, but yeah, definitely there's a lot within the experience of the 20th century that socialists have to grapple with. And I think people who have those questions are right to ask them. I think they're becoming increasingly infrequent but as the memory kind of drifts away and also especially as people deal with the day-to-day -day, you know, misery of, of you know, a generation that's going to have worse living conditions than the past generation and so on. But um, as people who are socialists, I think we should be concerned about the legacy of state socialism, even if the rest of the world is no longer. That's why I'm concerned with certain conditions and practices, even in governments like Cuba, which are not as bad as you know, a lot of these other previous attempts at state, state socialism. And for our final clips of this retrospective episode, we turn to Sarah Leonard, senior editor at The Nation magazine. One thing the left warned about decades ago was that unfettered globalization was going to produce a nationalist backlash because it's okay if, you know, the type of work that you do in some particular community changes over time, generation to generation, but when one person in the span of one life has to accommodate themselves to five different ways of working, you're going to see a huge amount of frustration and pushback against the changes that are happening. And now people are reacting to that, and suddenly people who are big proponents of globalization are feeling the repercussions of this sort of utopian idea they pushed that free trade was just going to get us all on a higher plane. So much has been made and discussed, uh, not just during the primary, but into the election and even now, of the seeming di divide on the liberal left between Clinton supporters and Sanders supporters. A lot of what you've been uh, referencing with respect to globalization is something that Sanders has, has talked about. You published an article in The Nation in February titled, Which Women Support Hillary and Which Can't Afford To? that seems to enter this debate, or at least to shed light on its complexities and ambiguities. You note that for many people, especially many working women with um, white-collar jobs, uh, Clinton 
can and should be taken as a kind of role model. Uh, she has faced sexism in a very public way, has fought against it, and has succeeded as a professional and indeed as a world leader. Yet you argue that the politics or policies Clinton would advance would actually hurt many women. Contrarily, you suggest that Sanders' policies might be better, especially for working class women. Could you, could you walk us through some of your thinking on this point and why ultimately would you have considered Sanders a better candidate for women in America and the poor? For sure. I mean, my broad, broad framework is that more women than men live in poverty, head up families in poverty, and women by and large actually have a tougher time of it in this country. Um, you know, working more tipped jobs, for example, um, where you're unlikely to be unionized and you can't count on your salary and you can't get pregnancy leave, all these things. So my general framework is that the more redistributive candidate is better for women. Um, and Sanders was certainly that, both on questions of what the minimum wage should be um, and on, for example, advocating single-payer health care and a number of other things on which he disagreed with Clinton. Clinton has a very mixed record when it comes to these things. I think if you are a white-collar woman who has struggled with sexism, especially if you're a writer or blogger, you're on the internet and you're getting all sorts of hateful sexist internet trolls, you look at Hillary and her toughness in the face of all of these crazy sexist attacks and you're like, that's my woman. Like, I respect that. I want to be like that. And it's time we elevated someone like that. And I totally get that. I think in my story, the other people I spoke to were the nurses. So I talked to someone in the National Nurses Union, which had endorsed Bernie Sanders, and they're like, look, you know, we see every day people come in for medical care and they can't afford it. The first question they ask on the table is, what is this going to cost? We've been fighting for single payer forever um, and for better protections for workers. And Bernie Sanders is totally committed to those things. So. For us, it's a no-brainer. And I was like, well, don't you want to see a woman president? She was like, yeah, I guess, but you know, I wish she supported right. those policies. Right. So I think that there are some more complicated ways of thinking about who the best candidate for women is. Mm. And looking back at Hillary Clinton's support for cutting welfare, especially, which she continued to say had been a success, even as a senator, not just when her husband was president. Um, those are very concerning things in electing a president who's going to have to look after the best interests of a nation of women whose well-being has been declining since 2008. So then, strategically then, as well as perhaps philosophically, what should liberals, and particularly Clinton supporters, take or learn uh, from this election? How do they need to change in order to challenge Trump in the coming months as well as in the next four years? Well, we can see in the United States and globally, there is a clear desire for a sort of populist candidate and for more dramatic economic change. And this desire has been taken up by the right more strongly than by the left. So in the US, you know, Trump represented that desire. We may not like it and he may be a terrible person, but he certainly represented that desire to sort of shake up a seemingly corrupt elite and get both more democracy and more um, sort of economic control. Um, and we could delve into the actual demographics of the Trump voter, which are not just poor. They're actually 
largely not poor mm-hmm. and sort of more middle class and worried about different things. But in the UK, you saw this with Brexit, right? And in multiple places, US, UK, several European countries, there's also a left populist alternative, Bernie Sanders, Corbyn, um, but they tend to get shut down actually by the left of center party. So Corbyn has had to struggle to maintain his position as labor leader, even though the mass of labor members support him, other labor politicians don't and want to oust him. In this case, we saw you know, the DNC, um, not totally unreasonably, clearly thought they had their candidate, Hillary, and were really irritated to have mm. to deal with a sort of populist challenger and move to sort of as much as they could just smooth this process over and make it go away, which I think was actually to the detriment of the Democratic Party. So what you want, I think, is if you're a Hillary supporter, for example, is to think like, okay, so we don't want the right representing this populist feeling. We definitely want the left to. So who are our candidates? What are the policies? How do we get in line with that kind of energy and make that work for us and really, really listen to what people are saying, what they're saying they want. So I'd like to ask a bit about some of the debates then that are going, since you're so alive to them, that are going sort of inside the left right now and inside the sort of liberal, um, liberal left wing of the Democratic Party. So one point is that a lot has been said uh, much has been debated in magazines, on TV and on Twitter, uh, about the ostensible differences between so-called class politics and identity politics, as if these are always two completely separate concepts. Mark Lillo recently authored a piece in the Times called the, Ident- the End of Identity Liberalism, in which he argued that, quote, in recent years, American liberalism has slipped into a kind of moral panic about racial, gender, and sexual identity that has distorted liberalism's message and prevented it from becoming a unifying force capable of governing. So what's your take on this reading of contemporary liberalism? I would love to know what era of liberalism he's talking about when he says it used to exist without identity. It's a totally ahistorical argument. I mean, liberalism has always sort of manufactured itself around who it sees as the polity, right? So you can have a time when largely like white propertied men voted. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think you'd be hard pressed to say that that was an era without identity, right? And we've had iterations of it ever since. Um, Even once um, everybody who's a citizen over 18 could vote, Obviously, you have all sorts of advantages and disadvantages that work out along gender lines, um, racial lines, class lines, um, that require remedies that are specific to those oppressions. Now, I think of that as the process of making the country better. If he sees that as a problem, I'm not sure what he's aiming for. So, I think being on the left is actually difficult because we care about and we care about unifying a really large number of people in order to gain the policies and the power that we need. So on the right, right, you have money. There's a lot of money on the right. On the left, you just have people, right? 
Now, the Democratic Party may have large donors, and I mean, there are lots of criticisms to be made around the Democratic Party, but on the left, you're obligated to get together all of these people who often don't have a lot in common, you know, like you have the white working class, you have an immigrant woman in New York, mm -hmm. I mean, you've got everybody. This is really hard to reconcile. And so I think a lot of people want to go back to a time when it felt like you didn't have to reconcile those things. Like we were successful in the past, what were we doing then? Well, maybe we weren't making such a big deal out of everybody's identities when we know that's not really the way that history works, right? And I will say I mostly see these arguments coming from white men, mm -hmm. which should tell you something, not that white men never know what they're talking about, but rather that it would be very difficult for anyone whose identity is not the assumed neutral norm to conceivably make this argument. All politics are identity politics, so are Mark Lillis. So, so, so you're, you're associated not just with the left generally, uh, but with a kind of socialism that's emerging today, particularly among young writers and intellectuals at, at publications like Jacobin, Dissent, The Nation, and The New Inquiry. Do you call yourself a socialist? If so, what does that term mean or what could it mean today in your view? And how is it different from the liberalism that we've been talking about? Yeah, so I do call myself a socialist. And... I think of it as a way of extending democracy, actually. So we believe in democracy at the ballot box, everyone gets to say. For some reason, we don't believe in it at work, in the economy, even though that's where we spend a large part of our lives. And so one thing that I like to think about is how that could change, how the economy could work for and be governed by everybody. And also, something that I think doesn't get enough play is even democracy as it exists now is actually really difficult to participate in with this level of economic inequality. So even if we had better campaign finance reform, which we should definitely have, um, rich people still control a lot of media, a lot of important institutions, cultural institutions. There isn't real equality of discourse as long as there is extreme inequality. And so I think that's really important to think about on a democracy level. So I think my the way I think of socialism being different from liberalism primarily is that liberalism tends to be about equal opportunity, right? Everybody should be able to compete in some sort of meritocratic system, which will sort the wheat from the chaff and so forth. Um, and I actually believe in a more equal distribution of outcome. So, so I think, I think it, it's been shown that a lot of young people, especially a lot of millennials, would be very attracted to what you're describing. Still, the term socialism has a history in, in the U.S. and we're living ah, in post exactly <laughs> post Cold War America. So, how do you respond? Because you must have had must have to respond to this all the time. How do you respond to the prevailing attitude uh, that socialism is essentially Marxism and that Marxism will always lead to tyranny? I mean, capitalism's not doing great. But I, so I only get this question from older people, actually, mm. which mm. is really interesting because <laughs> I think um, my experience has been that people my age, um, they came of political consciousness after the Cold War, after 89, and they came to political consciousness 
around the time of the Wall Street crash. So people are not afraid of like socialism taking their stuff. They're mm -hmm. worried about Wall Street taking their stuff. You know, their families very likely suffer and they probably entered a bad job market. So for millennials, the sort of stigma attached to socialism is not really there. What they've experienced is capitalism working extremely poorly for them. I think when I talk with older people, I mean, it's important for me to think through, obviously, that we're talking about a sort of small d democratic socialism and to not allow a direct mapping of bad systems from history onto the American present. That was our look back on the very eventful 2016. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Kadar Jabbar and Rachel Bills edit the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. For more information about Ralph and our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow Howenstein GBSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at Joe Hogan CGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been Common Ground.